Welcome to Storytime with Paul Dore. I can hear your voice over the hum. A short adrenaline shot of a podcast straight to the mind, heart, or sometimes the funny bone, wherever that is located. Today's episode, The Book Launch. I lied. I told you that episode 9 was the last episode of this season. I hope you still trust me. However, you do get a bonus live episode of Storytime, and it's a fitting end to this season. This event was put together to celebrate the launch of my second book, Dreams of Being a Kiwi. If you've been listening along, you've heard some excerpts from the book. Now it's for sale and you can read the entire thing. As usual, this wasn't your average book launch. The event featured Arlene Pakulin, who also does the theme music for this podcast, singing original songs that were woven into the script. The show also included a multimedia performance with pictures and videos to explain the backstory of the book. To see some of these pictures and videos, head over to my blog at pauldor.com. Arlene's songs are from her latest album, Home With You. Check her out at her website at officialarlene.com. The event took place at the Center for Social Innovation in Toronto, and support came from the Stories We Don't Tell crew. If you'd like to purchase your very own copy of the book, please visit pauldor.com for details. Thank you to everyone that came to the event, and to all of you out there listening who have supported my work over the years. Welcome, everybody. So, this is the launch of, uh, for my second book, Dreams of Being a Kiwi. Thank you very much. Okay, so the book is about a person that has some uh, mental health issues, and he goes on an adventure all the way to New Zealand to find himself. Not to heal himself, but just to maybe find a little bit of peace. But we're not gonna focus on that just yet. We're going to take a very big detour into territory that seemingly has nothing to do with this book. And then we will segue into a topic that is somewhat related, only to bring all of these narratives seamlessly together in a display that can only be described as akin to a literary high-wire act. What I'm trying to say is this will all make sense in the end. I just want to say how deeply I appreciate that you all came and I wanted you to know that you are all my favorite people and it makes me very happy to introduce Arlene Pakula. There's gonna be a time when we 
almost 20 years ago. Uh, I was making a film uh, that was uh, quite dated now. What's interesting to me is that the film was actually exploring similar themes to this new book. Mental health, the thin line of sanity, and what does that even mean? I don't really want to talk about the content of the film, but there was some interesting things happening behind the scenes. So during this time, my parents were going on vacation for a week. So I took my crew of actors and technicians to Ottawa, and we all stayed together in my parents' house. We did all manner of things that you do when you're shooting an independent film. We got dolly shots driving two cars side by side with camera people hanging out the windows. We had no permits and were stopped by the police and ran from the police even. In the same film, one of the characters had a dream where they fight with a life-sized stuffed animal. It was a very weird film. Again, since this was an independent film, everyone filled multiple roles, and there was no one left to play the bear. So as the director, I needed to step in. So here I am as the bear. <laughs> And uh, there was even another dream sequence in the film where the main character thought he was a superhero out to find the meaning of life. He was called Life Man, and I enlisted my mother as costume designer to make this superhero outfit. But it was, a, it was really an exhilarating uh, experience because at the end of a long day, we'd make dinner, eat and drink together while watching the day's rushes. We kind of became a family. One more storyline had a character find a locked safe in the street. Again, it was a bit handy, heavy-handed with the metaphor. You see, his heart was locked up and he didn't know the combination. I kept the safe. My roommate and I used it as a side table in our apartment. <clears throat> That's all it was useful for because I couldn't remember the combination either. So maybe it was my heart that was locked up. I came home one day to our apartment to find the, door, the back door open, a small window broken, and the safe stolen. Nothing else was touched except for the safe. My only solace was that the thief probably worked very hard to open that safe just to find that there was nothing there. Whoever stole that safe took one other thing. They did take my computer. And back in those days, there were no drives or clouds or whatever. I had all the pictures from the previous year when I had traveled to New Zealand. 
I'm not much of a picture taker, but those photographs were important to me. Photographs weren't actually ever that important, but the ones from that trip were. New Zealand was a profound experience for me, and now everything was lost except for my memories. It was actually so profound that it would be the setting of this new novel. actually visiting an old friend of mine that had moved to Greymouth, which is a small town up in the mountains. Maybe some of you have a friend like this too. I met this friend a long time ago when I was very young, and we connected on a variety of levels. As I got older, I changed, as we all do, and my friend and I grew apart over the years. We maintained a friendship based on time, rather than substance, a shared history that had very little shared interest anymore. However, this friend held me to the person I was, and any growth, maturity, or change was met with resistance, resentment, and sometimes outright hostility. So now I'm friends with someone that I really have nothing in common with, except we've known each other for many years. So when we met up in Greymouth, this friend seemed stuck and growing bitter by the day, decided to take it out on me. So for example, we met for a beer right before he moved to New Zealand. And we met up and we exchanged some pleasantries. And I told my friend that on this particular day, this would have been my father's 78th birthday. My friend's response was less than empathetic. Still moping about this, I see. Your dad died, so what? Everyone's dad dies at some point. It's amazing to me that you walk around like you're so put together and everything is so under control, when in reality, you do not deal with anything, always pushing it down until it erupts over a completely innocuous situation. That's a great way to live, keep it up. <laughs> After some more of this, sprinkling in a tangent about how I think I'm better than him, top it all off with him calling me a garbage person, and it was finally time to go. <laughs> I have retired from dating completely. <laughs> but when I was dating, my bitter friend was always there, which was weird. But let's say I met someone I found interesting and charming, and we were getting together at a small cafe. I'm me and I'm sitting here. And the person that I'm meeting is over here. And then my bitter friend is here. And she says, what kind of work do you do? 
And I say, well, I'm a writer. And he says, she's wondering when you're going to get a real job. And then I say, well, what do you do? And she says, I work as a chef. See, a real job. <laughs> that must be intense. Great comment, jackass. <laughs> it can be, but I love it. She loves her job, but she really hates you. What kind of things do you do for fun? Oh, I like to go out to events, like live stuff, comedy, plays, and so on. Plays. Really. She can't wait to leave. She is so not interested in you. I've never seen a more bored person in my life. Asshole. <laughs> and so on, you get the point. And you probably also know that I rarely get a second date. But even coming here, he is still in my head. As I was preparing tonight, my bitter friend was telling me to cancel everything. That what I had to say was not of any interest to anyone. He's here in the room with us right now, and he just won't shut the hell up. There's constantly two sets of narratives going on. What I am experiencing out in the world, and the alternative facts going on internally. In a way, it's selfish. None of these people are thinking or talking about me in the way my bitter friend describes. But the one thing he gave me was this book. The main character in the book is based on him. And for some reason, when I was in New Zealand, and in Greymouth specifically, where most of the story takes place, it was the first time I started thinking of this internal voice as something both a part of me, yet separate. The only thing you can do against alternative facts is push back against them. At times this can work, at most other times it's so emotionally exhausting that I wonder if I've taken the wrong approach. Maybe I should just stop fighting, maybe I should just give up. I'm looking for some calm and some peace and I just wish for even 10 seconds my mind would just sound like this.
After I got back from New Zealand, back to the book, uh, I sat down and wrote the manuscript. And then I put it away thinking that no one would be interested in it. But over the years, I kept working on it and reworking it and rewriting it. The main character had a brother that turned into a sister. 600 pages turned into 400, then 300. About a year ago, I picked it back up. And there was just something about it that I couldn't let go of. I was determined to get it out into the world. But during the summer, when I was intensely writing and editing, something kind of became unhinged. The material, mental health, the threat of losing your mind, was affecting me in ways I couldn't imagine at the time. What I realized that although it was a fictional novel, it was also more deeply truthful and more honest than anything else I had written. There was a reason why I thought it was no good at the beginning, and there was a reason why I was having so much trouble finishing it. I almost didn't want to deal with what it revealed about myself. So I did something that seems a little strange now, but was totally normal at the time. Essentially, I created another person, separate from me, in order to push forward and finish the manuscript. It was kind of the spirit of the book, or the humanity of it. By the end of the summer, I was actually dangerously close to losing my mind. This spirit worked alongside me, inspired me to keep going, but sometimes I wondered if it had my best interests at heart. Around this time in the summer, for some reason, as some of you might remember, a copy of Hollywood actor Mark Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg's <laughs> daily schedule was publicly released and soon trending on Twitter. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually Googled Mark Wahlberg douchebag, <laughs> and that's what came up. Fun fact about Mark Wahlberg, he was booked on American Airlines Flight 11 on September 11, 2001. The plane that was flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Marky Mark's plans changed the day before and he didn't end up on the plane. Even so, the star of such cinematic masterpieces as Transformers, <laughs> Age of Extinction, and Transformers, The Last Night, <laughs> said in an interview, if I was on that plane with my kids, it wouldn't have went down like it did. There would have been a lot of blood in that first class cabin, and then me saying, okay, we're gonna land somewhere safely, don't worry. So in addition to being a douchebag, he's also an asshole. <laughs> But according to his daily schedule, he, wake, he wakes up at 2.30 in the morning, he prays, he works out for almost two hours, showers for 90 minutes, spends an hour in, spends an hour in a Cairo chamber recovery, eats some more, showers again, and goes to bed at 7.30. Wahlberg's schedule is weirdly regimented, full of time for lots of self-discovery, and personal development. So I came up with my own schedule. Around the same time, 
With the spirit of the manuscript by my side, I wasn't sure if it was pushing me towards sanity or insanity. I kind of felt mentally broken a little bit. The manuscript compounding my experience until my identity was completely lost and my emotions numbed. It was just, I couldn't really feel anything. I don't think I was ever seriously thinking of taking my own life, but I would just have these thoughts similar to a phenomenon psychologists refer to as the call of the void. For example, when people are walking along the edge of a high place like a cliffside and for, so, and for no apparent reason feel the urge to jump. I'd be on my way somewhere in my car and think, what would happen if I just turned into oncoming traffic? Or I'd be on my bike and being in an accident popped into my head and I really didn't care. I went for a walk down the street from my place through Ontario Place and climbed out onto the breakers, listening to the waves crash, daring them to overtake me. Mark Wahlberg seemed to have something figured out. Me, I was obviously a hot mess and needed to do something. So I started collecting different forms of therapy and support groups and anything I could find, searching for some kind of solution to the call of the void. So this became my schedule. Mondays were with Rustin, a social worker at the Mood Disorder Association of Ontario. Tuesdays were my meetings for codependencies. Wednesdays, my psychotherapist. Thursdays, a support group. Fridays, a cognitive behavioral therapy course at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. I was determined to become a goddamn marvel of modern mental health sciences. <laughs> so I met Rustin, the social worker, in one of my groups. I liked him immediately. He reminded me of The Thing <laughs> from the Fantastic Four. Solid, slickly shaved head, tough, deep voice, straight talker. He used to hate himself, he told me, having gone through his own addictions and mental illnesses, but had come out the other side and now he wanted to help others. Part of these Appointments were being able to talk with someone that personally had mental health experiences, someone who had hit rock bottom themselves. My time with Rustin tipped when I was explaining something to him that was happening, and he interrupted me and said, give me a second, dude. He called me dude. And he slapped his giant hand onto his giant head and said, dude, I just need to think about this for a second because that's really fucked up. There's nothing like when your counselor, who has experienced a lot of crappy situations himself, and who has seen it all, needs to process something you said and describe it back to you as fucked up. So from that moment on, when things happened in my life, I'd think, would this get a that's fucked up from Rustin? And I'd measure the success of our appointments with how many that's fucked up dudes I'd get. <laughs> On Tuesdays, I headed to church, not really to church, but down in the basement to secret anonymous meetings for people with codependency. It was here where we sat in a claustrophobic room with stone walls on rickety church pews and told stories to each other about how terrible we were. 
I wasn't sure if this was actually working or if it was even a healthy thing to do. But misery does like company. What was actually more helpful was an excuse to step into a church. Not to pray or anything, just to sit in the peace and quiet. And I usually arrived a little early and sat in the church, not really belonging, but no one telling me to leave. Wednesdays were psychotherapy day. I went to this therapist years ago, and the first time I talked with her, I said, I'm here because I'd like to learn how to get, of, get out of my own way. I had taken a break from psychotherapy for a few years and started seeing her again in the summer. At her first appointment back, I said, I'm here because I'd like to learn how to get out of my own way. So I've made lots of progress. <laughs> Thursdays were my support group, an often harrowing journey into a pit of despair and suffering. Often someone would burst into tears from the moment they introduced themselves, which made me and everyone else do the same. It was a fun way to spend an evening. And finally, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Fridays. Here we made goals, got homework, and readings to do every week. Perhaps due to my partial type A personality, I got so frustrated when most of the other people didn't do their homework. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was at the top of the class, which is good or bad, depending on how you looked at it. But after a few weeks of this schedule, my brain was getting overloaded from assessing, trying to understand what was happening to me. Walking from one of my meetings at Queen and Church, a man sitting on a bench called out to me. You are very lucky. Confused, I stopped. He said again, you are very lucky. You are holding on to an incredible amount of pain inside of you. That didn't sound very lucky to me. From the outside, your friends and everyone else think you are happy, but they cannot see the inside of you. He stood up and walked with me a bit and continued. The last two years have been very difficult for you. Lots of pain. There is something in your life that you are holding on to. You have to put it out into the world. How do I do that, I asked him. He said, I can show you. You are in pain right now, but in six months, everything will be better. It will be as though you are a different person. I asked him, how do you know this? And he said, I'm psychic. I came here from across the world to speak with you. I walk around and am never in the same place twice. And if you show me your palm, I can tell you what will happen. I didn't show him my palm, but he was right. I mean, this guy could have been stopping everyone and saying the same thing. And he could have been right 50% of the time, but he was eerily correct in my case. I needed to face some things on my own and needed to let this spirit in this book go and be put out into the world. Or maybe I just needed to spend some time in a Cairo recovery chamber like Mark Wahlberg. Perhaps, but to that I think Rustin might have said, Dude, that's fucked up. <laughs> Thank you.
So when I was working on uh, this, this script, I'd been thinking so much about truth and honesty and fiction and nonfiction and whether it even matters as long as you get the emotion right. Now, all these things that I've told you happened in one way or another. I made that film at the beginning. It was actually about three different films, but I put them all into one just, you know. <laughs> that was me in the bear suit. Everything I said about the book is truthful. The years it took to write, how in the summer I wrestled with it to the point I thought I was losing my mind. And I, the only thing is, I hate to tell you that the movie trailer is not real. <laughs> but I can honestly say that I, was, I have been somewhat unwell and broken in the past couple of years. And the only thing I could do was dive back into this book and face some of the truths about myself that I had been ignoring up to this point face the truths inside myself that caused so many things to kind of fall apart. I don't know about you, but when I'm broken and all the pieces of me are on the floor, the best thing for me to do is to make something. Through all of the pain and disappointments and my obsession with therapy recently, the most important thing I learned was the capacity of connection and of hearing other people's stories because I had wondered if my own story had any worth anymore. I had been surrounded by people in those therapy groups, all broken in different ways, misfits, outsiders. Here we all were together and getting a little better all the time, a little better each day. Through the process of writing this book, I realized the power of self-awareness, of being able to step back and see how important it all is. When my friend Stefan and I were on the roof of this building, him in a zebra onesie, and me in a costume that my mom made 20 years ago, <laughs> I was just looking out at the city, and I'm like, there's nothing I would rather be doing right now. <laughs> And the importance of knowing that writing can be a lonely pursuit, but understanding that I put a lot of years and my whole self into this book, and what a privilege to be able to share it with you. The ability of allowing myself to be vulnerable and in knowing in my heart that this story is worth being told and deserves to be shared. And what a privilege, how lucky I am being here with all of you because there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Waking up alone Still reaching for the warmth of your skin And I know It's insane Where to turn or what we have to blame we have and what
Piece of our love.